Welcome to Eccentric Earth. I'm your host, Amy Walker, and joining me this week to delve into a story from history is my guest, Pete Gaskell. Hello, hello. Hi, thank you for coming back again, Pete. Oh, always, always welcome, Amy. Glad, glad you actually decided to, to let me back on. Just to <laughs> <laughs> casually ruin another episode. No, 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 no. Nothing was ruined last time. We, we had a lot of fun with the Emu War. Indeed we did. and been trying to get you back on since but it's as we were saying just before starting recording it's one of those podcasting things of trying to get everything to line up but you're Mm. finally back and i'm sure it's going to be an awesome time yes i hope so hit me with it okay so last time you had a strange event this time i'm going to give you something of a mystery i'm intrigued On November 24th, 1971, a middle-aged man carrying a black attaché case approached the flight counter of Northwest Orient Airlines at Portland International Airport. He identified himself as Dan Cooper and used cash to purchase a one-way ticket on Flight 305, a 30-minute trip to Seattle. Cooper boarded the aircraft, a Boeing 727-100, and took seat 18C in the rear of the passenger cabin. He lit a cigarette and ordered a bourbon and soda. Oh, it's a different time. (laughs) Yes. The 70s where if you didn't smoke on a plane, you were the arsehole. (laughs) Or the pilot. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Fellow passengers described him as a man in his mid-40s, between 5 foot 10 and 6 foot high. They said he wore a black, lightweight raincoat, a dark suit, neatly pressed white collared shirt, and a black necktie with a mother-of-pearl tie pin. Flight 305 was approximately one-third full when it took off on schedule at 2.50pm. Shortly after takeoff, Cooper handed a note to Florence Schaffner, the flight attendant situated nearest to him. He leaned toward her and whispered, Miss, you'd better look at that note. I've got a bomb. Dum-dum-dum. The note was printed in neat, all-capital letters, with felt-tip pen. It's not known what was written in the note, because Cooper later took it back. Wants to use it again. (laughs) (laughs) Schaffner recalled that the note indicated he had a bomb inside his briefcase. After she read the note, Cooper directed her to sit beside him. She did as requested, then quietly asked if she could see the bomb. Cooper cracked open the briefcase long enough for her to glimpse eight red cylinders attached to wires coated with red insulation and a large cylindrical battery. Did it say acne on them? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's gone for a very... Traditional look. Yeah, stereotypical (laughs) traditional bomb, which it's either, you know, a classic, don't mess with it, or 
he does ha- not have a bomb at all, but he's gone for the thing that most looks like a bomb. <laughs> Just a word of this, all sorts, shaped in a very specific manner. <laughs> It was just many packets of Twizzlers. <laughs> After closing the briefcase, he dictated his demands. $200,000 in negotiable American currency. Four parachutes, two primary and two reserve, and a fuel truck standing by in Seattle to refuel the aircraft upon arrival. Why? Schaffner conveyed Cooper's instructions to the pilots in the cockpit. When she returned, he was now wearing dark sunglasses. Oh, now, now I hate him. Not only the fact he's got a bomb <laughs> and he's making demands, he's one of those twonks who wears sunglasses indoors. <laughs> there, There is a good quote from an episode of Supernatural where uh, Jensen Ackles says, there's only two types of people who wear sunglasses indoors, blind people and douchebags. <laughs> yes. It's so true. It is. It's very, very true. <laughs> the pilot, William Scott, contacted Seattle Tacoma Airport air traffic control, which in turn informed local and federal authorities. The other 36 passengers were given false information that the arrival in Seattle would be delayed because of minor technical difficulties. <laughs> so no one noticed what was going on with this guy, but, but, he, was, but he had a, suddenly had this flight attendant sat next to him and he was fiddling in a briefcase and there was worried stuff happening. He's just like, oh, you know what? Someone's, someone's forgotten to order food for me. Yeah, none of the passengers knew about the bomb at all. <laughs> Which is kind of shocking, but mm. amazing that they didn't cause a panic as well. Yeah, very, very, very laid back. It's almost like this isn't the first time this has happened. <laughs> well, it was the 70s as well. It was a very laid back time. Yeah. <laughs> they were all casually smoking away in anyway. They were, they were, all, they were all high skites, literally and figuratively. <laughs> Northwest Orient's president, Donald Nyrop, authorised payment of the ransom and ordered all employees to cooperate fully with the hijackers' demands. The aircraft circled Puget Sound for approximately two hours to allow Seattle police and the FBI sufficient time to assemble Cooper's parachutes and ransom money and to mobilise emergency personnel. It, it, it took a long time to get four parachutes in a fuel truck. <laughs> True, it might be the 200 grand they're sourcing, though. Uh, yeah, probably. Back, I mean, back, in the, back in the 70s, it's, I just think of Dr. Evil from Austin Powers, one million dollars. Yeah, it's 200 grand. It did seem like a fairly it's, it's small a amount. chunky amount. It's a chunky yeah. amount back in 1971, or is it 71, you say? Yes, yeah. Yeah, I suppose. It's just by today's standards, you think, 200 grand. This, yeah. What's the point? That's, that's basically <laughs> what Paul Pogba was on a week, so... <laughs> Schaffner recalled that Cooper appeared familiar with the local terrain. At one point, he remarked, looks like Tacoma down there, as the aircraft flew above it. He also correctly mentioned that McCord Air Force Base was only 20-minute drive from Seattle-Tacoma Airport. Okay. Schaffner described him as calm, polite, and well-spoken, not at all consistent with the stereotypes popularly associated with air piracy at the time. Air piracy sounds so awesome for hijacking, doesn't it? Expect you know, peg legs and eye patches. (laughs) (laughs) On, on like, Zeppelins. 
it sounds like they should be attacking planes with other planes, like the opening of the Dark Knight. You know, it's, you should be like jumping from plane to plane. And, uh, it sounds a lot cooler than hijacking. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I'm just thinking of that Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow. <laughs> or like steampunk zeppelins and all sorts going off. <laughs> oh, that would be a great time to be alive. <laughs> it was. <laughs> Tina Mucklow, another of the flight attendants, agreed. He wasn't nervous, she told investigators. He seemed rather nice. He was never cruel or nasty. He was thoughtful and calm at all times. That's like a mother of a serial killer. You get them on the news. Like, He's always a nice boy. He always ate his pack lunch when he was eight. <laughs> you can't tell anything from that, can you? It's the nice, polite ones you've got to worry about. Yes. Which is why I swear at the drop of a hat so people know I'm not a nutter. Yeah. <laughs> He ordered a second bourbon and water, paid his drinks tab, and attempted to give Schaffner the change, and offered to request meals for the flight crew during their stop in Seattle. That is very polite of him. Unless it was airplane food, in which case he was poisoning them. (laughs) FBI agents assembled the ransom money from several Seattle-area banks, 10,000 unmarked $20 bills, and made a microfilm photograph of each of them. Cooper rejected the military-issue parachutes offered, demanding instead civilian parachutes with manually operated ripcords. Seattle police obtained them from a local skydiving school. Okay. Well, military ones be, you know, better, you'd have thought. Yeah. <laughs> Although slightly different configuration, so it could be something he's not familiar with. Mm-hmm. But, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he's been practising a lot in his own spare time with civilian parachutes, so that would have confuzzled him slightly. Yes, it's a good theory. (laughs) At 5.24pm, Cooper was informed that his demands had been met, and at 5.39, the aircraft landed at Seattle-Tacoma Airport. Cooper instructed the pilot to taxi the jet to an isolated, brightly lit section of the tarmac and close each of the window shades in the cabin to deter police snipers. And we're still passengers on there thinking this was entirely normal. Yeah, completely. <laughs> Continue. Northwest Orient Seattle's operation manager, Al Lee, approached the aircraft in street clothes to avoid the possibility that Cooper might mistake him in an airline <laughs> uniform for a police officer. You say street clothes. I just imagine you might some sort of 90s Detroit rapper <laughs> with that huge boingy necklace and all Backwards baseball cap for work. <laughs> <laughs> he was very ahead of his time, fashion. Very street indeed. <laughs> he delivered a cash-filled knapsack and parachutes to Mucklow via the aft stairs. Once the delivery was complete, Cooper ordered all the passengers, Schaffner and senior flight attendant Alice Hancock, to leave the plane. During refueling, Cooper outlined his flight plan to the cockpit crew a southeast course towards Mexico City at the minimum airspeed possible without stalling the aircraft. So he wants to trundle to Mexico. <laughs> yep. At a maximum of 10,000 feet, 
he further specified that the landing gear remain deployed in the takeoff and landing position, the wing flaps be lowered to 15 degrees, and the cabin remain unpressurised. What? Unless he wants to pretend it's a hang glider. (laughs) (laughs) Very strange specific demands, I'll give him Mm. that. Mm. The co-pilot informed Cooper that the aircraft's range was limited to approximately 1,000 miles under the specified flight configuration, which meant that a second refuelling would be necessary before entering Mexico. Cooper and the crew discussed options and agreed on Reno, Nevada as a refuelling stop. Mm. With the plane's rear exit door open and its staircase extended, Cooper directed the pilot to take off. <laughs> With the stairs just dangling away behind <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Okay. I'd like it if some passengers were just still on the plane because it's normal. <laughs> Northwest's home office objected to this on grounds that it was unsafe to take off with the aft staircase deployed. I'd have thought that, yes. <laughs> Cooper responded that it was indeed safe, but he would not argue the point. He would. Lo- he did say, however, that he would lower it once they were airborne. By lower it, do you mean get rid of it? Oh, sort of like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The FAA official requested a face-to-face meeting with Cooper aboard the aircraft, which was denied. The refuelling process was delayed because of a vapour lock in the fuel tanker's truck pumping mechanism, and Cooper became suspicious, but allowed a replacement truck to continue the refuelling, and a third after the second round dry. Hmm. At approximately 7.40pm, the Boeing 727 took off with only five people on board. Cooper, the pilot, flight attendant Mucklow, the co-pilot, and a flight engineer. What happened to Miss Schaffner? Is she, is she gone now, Miss Yes, he, he ordered her off. Oh. I think he liked that, to yeah. let her go yeah. off. That, you, know, you know what? You've dealt with my crazy shit for too long. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get started on these guys. Unless was she just like, was she on the da- was she on the stairs and got jettisoned? <laughs> <laughs> so long, sucker. <laughs> Two F one hundred six fighter aircraft were scrambled from the nearby McCord Air Base and followed behind the airliner, one above it and one below, out of Cooper's view. <laughs> After takeoff, Cooper told Mucklow to join the rest of the crew in the cockpit and remain there with the door closed. At approximately 8pm, a warning light flashed in the cockpit, indicating that the aft staircase apparatus had been activated. (laughs) The crew's offer of assistance via the aircraft's intercom system was curtly refused. The crew soon noticed a subjective change in air pressure, indicating that the aft door was open. At approximately 8.13pm, the aircraft's tail section sustained a sudden upward movement, significant enough to require trimming to bring the plane back to a level flight. The only thing I can think of right now is, is uh, Rick Mayall's flash art saying jet movement. <laughs> <laughs> At approximately 10.15, the aircraft's aft staircase was still deployed when Scott and Razkat landed the 727 at Reno Airport. So it's just been dangling this whole time. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> FBI agents, state troopers, sheriff deputies, and Reno police surrounded the jet. When Cooper failed to emerge, an armed search quickly confirmed that he was no longer on the plane. 
What? FBI agents recovered 66 unidentified latent fingerprints aboard the airliner. The mm. agents also found Cooper's black clip-on tie, tie pin and two of the four parachutes. So, presumably, he took the other two and jumped off at some point using this the stairs to help him. appears to be the case, yes. In random location B. <laughs> Authorities interviewed eyewitnesses in Portland, Seattle and Reno and all of those who personally interacted with Cooper and a series of composite sketches were developed. Local police and FBI agents immediately began questioning possible suspects. Would you possible suspects? Just anyone who looks slightly like him. Just pretty much. off a moving plane earlier on today. They, they pretty much are just going off, who does this person look like? Well, from a description, it sounds like he could be one of the Blues Brothers. <laughs> explains everything. <laughs> An Oregon man named D.B. Cooper, who had a minor police record, was one of the first persons of interest in the case. He was contacted by Portland police on the off chance that the hijacker had used his real name or the same alias in a previous crime. He was quickly ruled out as a suspect, but a local reporter named James Long, rushing to meet a deadline, confused the eliminated suspect's name with the pseudonym used by the hijacker. A wire service operator republished the error, followed by numerous other media sources. The moniker D.B. Cooper became logged in public's collective memory of the event. Oh dear. Poor D.B. Cooper with a prior criminal record. <laughs> Everyone's going to think he's the plane hijacker. <laughs> a precise search of the area was difficult to define, as even small differences in estimates of the aircraft's speed or the environmental conditions along the flight path changed Cooper's projected landing point considerably. Mm-hmm. An important variable was the length of time he remained in freefall before pulling his ripcord, if indeed he had succeeded in opening the parachute at all. Neither of the Air Force pilots saw anything exit the airliner, either visually or on radar, nor did they see a parachute open. But at night, with extremely limited visibility and cloud cover obscuring any ground lighting, an airborne human figure clad entirely in black clothing could easily have gone undetected. Particularly if he was wearing sunglasses. (laughs) That was the extra stealth he needed. (laughs) In order to conduct an experimental recreation, Scott piloted the aircraft using the hijacking in the same flight configuration. FBI agents pushing a 200-pound sled out of the open stairwell were able to reproduce the upward motion of the tail section described by the flight crew. Based on this experiment, it was concluded that 8.13pm was the most likely jump point. When they detected that was when something weird happened. Yeah, it's most likely that's when he jumped out of the plane. So they've narrowed down a time, so it's not bad. I'm just intrigued as to how they didn't notice he was, wasn't there anyway. So, you know that guy who's making us do all this weird stuff? Yeah, yeah. Where is he? Um, yeah. Let's just carry on. Let's just do our job. I, I know if he says, sit in the cabin and don't come out or I'll blow us all up, you're more likely to stay in the cabin. But when it's been a couple of hours and he's in the back mm. with a couple of parachutes and you've 
had an indicator saying the door is open, you mm. think you'd come to the conclusion he's jumped out. <laughs> Might have had a sneaky peek just to see. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, we've got to do a job, damn it. <laughs> At the moment of the jump, the aircraft was flying through a heavy rainstorm over the Lewis River in southwestern Washington. Initial extrapolations placed Cooper's landing zone within an area of the southernmost outreach of Mount St. Helens, a few miles southeast of Ariel, Washington, near Lake Merwin. Searched efforts focused on the Clark and Colitz counties, encompassing the terrain immediately south and north, respectively, of the Lewis River. FBI agents and sheriff deputies from these counties searched large areas of the mountainous wilderness on foot and by helicopter. Door-to-door searches of local farmhouses were also carried out. Other search parties ran patrol boats along Lake Merwin and Yale Lake, the reservoir immediately to its east. No traces of Cooper, nor any of the equipment presumed to have left the aircraft with him, were found. The FBI also coordinated an aerial search, using fixed-wing aircraft and helicopters from the Oregon Army National Guard, along the entire flight plan from Seattle to Reno. Oh, they'd be using the planes to walk down on the... I thought they were just hoping he was still somewhere in mid-air. <laughs> just flying around. <laughs> That's him. There he is. <laughs> While numerous broken tree chops and several pieces of plastic and other objects resembling parachute canopies were sighted and investigated, nothing relevant to the hijacking was found. Shortly after the spring thaw in early 1972... Teams of FBI agents, aided by some 200 Army soldiers from Fort Lewis, along with Air Force personnel, National Guardsmen and civilian volunteers, conducted another thorough ground search for 18 days in March, and then an additional 18 days in April. Electronic Exploration Company, a marine salvage firm, used a submarine to search the 200-foot depths of Lake Merwin. Ultimately, the search operation arguably the most extensive and intensive in U.S. history, uncovered no significant material evidence related to the hijacking. It, it, that's, um, that holds great water the American investigative departments, doesn't it? They can't find anything, despite whatever they've been doing. Yeah, you, you think something would turn up, but... Mm-hmm. It's, like, it's like searching for weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Except this time they know roughly where something's supposed to be, and <laughs> they still if can't he, find anything. If he, if he existed at all. <laughs> yeah. A month after the hijacking, the FBI distributed a list of the ransom serial numbers to financial institutions, casinos, racetracks, and other businesses that routinely conduct significant cash transactions. Why did it take them a month to do that? You do that immediately. Yeah. Because I've been wandered so many times, you'd never be able to trace it back after like a month, particularly in 1971. Very slow off the mark, definitely. Yeah. That'd be the first thing you think of after not finding him. It'd be like, oh, if he surfaces anywhere, we'll have him. No, let's give him a month. That's, that's basically, <laughs> that's a basically month to turn like, in. <laughs> it's basically like playing hide and seek and waiting for waiting until he counts ten for him to run away, isn't it? <laughs> have to be fair about this. Say British shark. <laughs> Let's give him a fighting chance. <laughs> Northwest Orient Airlines offered a reward of 15% of the recovered money to a maximum of $25,000. In early 1972, 
U.S. Attorney General John Mitchell released the serial numbers to the general public. In 1972, two men used counterfeit $20 bills printed with Cooper's serial numbers to swindle $30,000 from a Newsweek reporter. In early 1973, with the ransom money still missing, the Oregon Journal republished the serial numbers and offered $1,000 to the first person to turn in any bills from the ransom. In Seattle, the Post-Intelligencer made a similar offer with a $5,000 reward. The offers remained in effect until Thanksgiving 1974. (laughs) And though there were several near matches, no genuine bills were recovered. In 1975, Northwest Orient's insurer Global Indemnity Co. complied with an order from the Minnesota Supreme Court and paid the airline 180,000 claim on the ransom money. Basically saying, it's gone. Yeah. Just, yeah. So in the end, they only lost 20 grand rather than the 200, yeah. so that's not too bad. Yeah. Subsequent analyses of the flight indicated that the original landing zone estimates were inaccurate. Scott, who was flying the aircraft manually because of Cooper's speed and altitude demands, later determined that his flight path was significantly further east than initially assumed. Additional data from a variety of sources, in particular Continental Airlines pilot Tom Bohan, who was flying four minutes behind Flight 305. Oh, I just thought it was just a random. He's like, you know, (laughs) I'm a pilot and I know. (laughs) It could have been. (laughs) Indicated that the winds direction factored into a drop zone calculations had been wrong, possibly by as much as 80 degrees. This and other supplemental data suggested that the actual drop zone was probably south-southeast of the original estimate in the drainage area of the Washougal River. In 1978, a placard printed with instructions for lowering the aircraft stairs of a 727 was found by a deer hunter near a logging road about 30 miles east of Castle Rock, Washington, which was within Flight 305's basic flight path. That, that would have fallen off. When when we put when we had the stairs down and it was and all that so that would have fallen off around then. We have evidence. Yeah, and here's some big evidence. Ooh. In February 1980, eight-year-old Brian Ingram was vacationing with his family on the Columbia River at a beachfront known as Tina Bar, about nine miles downstream from Vancouver, Washington, and 20 miles southeast of Ariel. The child uncovered three packets of the ransom cash as he raked the sandy riverbed to build a campfire. The bills were significantly disintegrated, but still bundled in rubber bands. FBI technicians confirmed that the money was indeed a portion of the ransom, two packets of $120 bills each, and a third packet of 90 all arranged in the same order as when they were given to Cooper. So he just, either they fell out... Oh, he just decided to save them for a rainy day. Yeah. <laughs> Best place when to you... them is on a river. <laughs> yes. Well, when you originally said big evidence, and then he said an eight-year-old, I was like, he was born mid-flight? <laughs> In 1986, after protracted negotiations, the recovered bills were divided equally between Ingram and Northwestern Orient's insurer the FBI retained 14 examples as evidence. Ingram later sold 15 of his bills at auction in 2008 for around $37,000 to collectors. To date, 
none of the 9,710 remaining bills have turned up anywhere in the world, and their serial numbers remain available online for public search. I don't know if someone just found one of them. Just one. Just, just a random $20 yeah. bill. <laughs> well, as soon as that's identified as one of his, do what Ingram did. Sell it at auction. Get money. <laughs> get money for money. Yeah. In late 2007, the FBI announced that a partial DNA profile had been obtained from three organic samples found on the hijacker's clip-on tie, though they later acknowledged that there is no evidence that the hijacker was the source of the sample material. <laughs> the Bureau also made public a file of previously unreleased evidence, including Cooper's plane ticket, and posted previously unreleased composite sketches and the fact sheets, along with a request for the general public for information that might lead to Cooper's positive identification. This is now, what, 2007? Yes. This is 36 years after it happened. <laughs> if he just showed up looking exactly the same anywhere at this point, just in the same clothes, looking the same, I'd have some questions. They did release the original along with a version of him aged, what they think he could look like now. But so, still in the same clothes. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It's not that much different. They just basically drew some wrinkles on... Yeah, the first as they do. Yeah. <laughs> the FBI also disclosed that Cooper chose the older of the two primary parachutes supplied to him, rather than the technically superior professional sports parachute. Sports parachute. That sounds like something you see on a Nike advert, isn't it? It's like, <laughs> sports parachute, just for men. He also chose, from the two reserve parachutes, a dummy parachute an unusable unit with an inoperative ripcord intended for classroom demonstrations. Although it had clear markings identifying it to any expert skydiver as non-functional, the FBI stressed that the inclusion of the dummy reserve parachute was accidental at the time. Hmm. Is he about always a, oh, sorry, Amy, I was just going to say, is he about always a test to see how thick he was? <laughs> is he either thick or, or he just thought, you know, I can do with one and I'm going to show off. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the fact that he's jumping out of a plane mid-flight with 200 grand, he's already proven that he's quite ballsy, so doing mm. it with one parachute isn't beyond the realms of possibility. <laughs> he's doing it for the likes, Amy. Yeah. <laughs> In March 2009, the FBI disclosed that Tom Kay, a paleontologist from the Burbank Museum of Natural History and Culture in Seattle, had assembled a team of citizen sleuths. The group, eventually known as the Cooper Research Team, reinvestigated important components from the case using GPS, satellite imagery, and other technologies unavailable in 1971. While little new information was gained regarding the buried ransom money or Cooper's landing zone, they were able to find and analyse hundreds of minute particles on Cooper's tie using electron mic microscopy. Lycopodium spores were identified as well as fragments of bisphum and aluminium. In November 2011, Kay announced that the particles of pure titanium had also been found on the tie. He explained that titanium, which was much rarer in the 1970s than it is today, was at the time only found in metal fabrication or production facilities, or at chemical companies. 
The findings suggested that Cooper may have been a chemist or a metallurgist, or possibly an engineer or manager in a metal or chemical manufacturing plant. Okay. On July 8, 2016, the FBI announced that it was suspending active investigations of the Cooper case, citing a need to focus its investigative resources and manpower on issues of higher and more urgent priority. It took them 45 years to reach a conclusion that they might not really be able to solve this case. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was active consideration until then. So we're going to crack this one, guys. Never mind all this, all this, all this petty larceny that's going on. We're going to focus on a 45-year-old case of a disappearing hijack aerial pirate guy. <laughs> it's like they were going to... Surely there are people working on that case who weren't even born when it happened mm. it's like let it go <laughs> you're not gonna get it oh the idea when you said about the citizen sleuths about it they're not really uncovering anything and um, my initial thought was yeah but we ha- it was way better than a normal game of cluedo wasn't it so <laughs> local field offices will continue to accept any legitimate physical evidence related specifically to the parachutes or the ransom money that may emerge in the future the 60-volume case file will be preserved for historic purposes at FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. 60 volumes. Yes. <laughs> for a case that they have absolutely no idea about. <laughs> yes. <laughs> hmm. Over the 45-year span of its active investigation, the FBI periodically made public some of its working hypotheses and tentative conclusions, drawn from witness testimony and the scarce physical evidence. These are just wild guesses, weren't they? Yep, but some of them are quite interesting. (laughs) Such as? Cooper appeared to be familiar with the Seattle area and may have been an Air Force veteran, based on testimony that he recognised the city of Tacoma from the air as the jet circled Puget Sound, and his accurate comment that McCord Air Force Base was approximately 20 minutes drive time from Seattle-Tacoma Airport, a detail most civilians would not know or comment upon. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I I have to agree with that one. It kind of makes sense. Mm. His financial situation was likely very desperate, as extortionists and other criminals who steal large amounts of money nearly always do so, according to experts, because they need it urgently. Otherwise, the crime is not worth the considerable risk. Evidence suggested that Cooper was knowledgeable about technique, aircraft and the terrain. He demanded four parachutes to force the assumption that he might compel one or more hostages to jump with him, thus ensuring he would not be deliberately supplied with sabotaged equipment. He chose a 727-100 aircraft because it was ideal for a bailout escape, due to not only its aft air stair, but also the high aftward placement of the three engines, which allowed a reasonably safe jump without the risk of immediate incineration by jet exhaust. Mm. It also had a single port fueling capacity, a recent innovation that allowed all tanks to be refueled rapidly for a single fuel port. Except for when the fuel tanks were out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it also had the ability, which was unusual for a commercial jet airliner, to remain in slow, low-altitude flight without stalling, and Cooper knew how to control its airspeed and altitude without entering the cockpit, where he could have been overpowered by the three pilots. In addition, 
Cooper was familiar with important details, such as the appropriate flap setting of 15 degrees, which was unique to that aircraft, and a typical refueling time. It's very childish of me, but I did I did giggle when you said flap setting. Yeah, I, I did internally. <laughs> <laughs> You're way more professional than I am. <laughs> he knew that the aft air stair could be lowered during flight, a fact never disclosed to civilian flight crews since there was no situation on a passenger flight that would make it necessary. Why would why would flight crews need to know about it anyway? Because it wasn't going to happen unless some rando like this dude suddenly decides just to deploy it mid-flight. Yeah. It won't be something you do. But then there was no situation. He know? Well, yes. Mm. It, it, it seems that he's very knowledgeable about, about air, air procedure. Yeah. He's an easy of a pilot, the one who commented <laughs> for no reason. <laughs> It was concluded that some of his knowledge was virtually unique to Central Intelligence Agency paramilitary units. So he's possibly CIA as well. So he's a lot of things. He's he's a, he's a military pilot, he's a commercial pilot, he's CIA, and also he's worked in the metalworks. Yeah, there's, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of theories here. He's a very busy man, despite the fact he's disappeared for 40 years. Yeah. Maybe he needed a break after all that. Well, yeah, it sounds like a lot. <laughs> Burnout happens, kids, it happens. According to Kay's research team, Cooper's meticulous planning may also have extended to the timing of his operation, and even his choice of attire. The FBI searched but could not find anyone who disappeared that weekend. <laughs> I'm sorry, but couldn't find anyone who disappeared is such a wonderfully stupid sentence. <laughs> <laughs> this suggested that the perpetrator may have returned to his normal occupation after the weekend. <laughs> so he just carried on about his business. Yep. <laughs> Whichever business that might be in, one of, one of five completely different jobs he appeared to have. <laughs> if you're planning on going back to work Monday, then you would need as much time as possible to get out of the woods, find transportation, and get home. It's very fastidious for you to do it so you get there on a Monday morning at nine o'clock and clock in like normal. Yeah. You won't believe what I got up to this weekend, guys. <laughs> <laughs> the very best time for this is in front of a four-day weekend, which is the timing Dan Cooper chose for his crime. Furthermore, if he was planning ahead, he knew he had to hitchhike out of the woods and it's much easier to be picked up in a suit and tie than it is in old blue jeans. It's easier to get a hitchhike if you're a woman, I would say, than if you're a man. If you're, yeah. <laughs> so he didn't quite approach it properly there, did he? The Bureau, however, were more sceptical, concluding that Cooper lacked crucial skydiving skills and experience. How do we know this? <laughs> He's a CIA paramilitary pilot <laughs> metallurgist. <laughs> Why do they judge that he's not an expert skydiver as well? Well, they do have a statement to that effect. We originally thought Cooper was an experienced jumper, perhaps even a paratrooper, said Special Agent Larry Carr, the leader of the investigative team from 2006 to 16. We concluded that after a few years, this was simply not true. No experienced parachutist would have jumped in the pitch black at night in the rain, with 200 mile an hour winds in his face, wearing loafers and a trench coat. It was simply too risky. 
he also missed that his reserve chute was only for training, which had been sewn shut, something a skilled skydiver would have checked. He also failed to bring or request a helmet, chose to jump with the older and technically inferior of the two primary parachutes supplied to him, and jumped into a minus 57 degree wind chill without proper protection against the extreme cold. Yeah, but if he'd have been prepared for this, like, in that sense, if he'd have gone up to say, can I have a helmet, please, we might have been like, you're not going to do anything daft now, are you, Mr. Cooper? (laughs) (laughs) I think you just have to take the opportunity that presented itself, so you couldn't really ask for all the equipment suggesting he needed. Can I have a can I have a protective coat, please, and a helmet? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Can I have thermal gear? <laughs> a thermal gear, helmet, and last week's copy of Vanity Fair, please. <laughs> <laughs> the FBI speculated that Cooper did not survive his jump, diving into the wilderness without a plan, without the right equipment, in such terrible conditions. He never even got his chute open," said Carr. Even if he did land safely. Agents contended that survival in the mountains terrain on the onset of winter would have been all but impossible without an accomplice at a predetermined landing point. This would have required a precisely timed jump, necessitating in turn cooperation from the flight crew. There is no evidence that Cooper requested or received any such help from the crew, nor that he had any clear idea where he was when he jumped into the stormy overcast darkness. Well, we know he didn't ask help from the crew because they didn't know he was gone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't even notice he jumped out of the plane. <laughs> Just carried on. So I don't think they were complicit in this somehow. Between 1971 and 2016, the FBI processed over a thousand serious suspects, which included assorted publicity seekers and deathbed confessors, but nothing more than circumstantial evidence could be found to implicate any of them. Why would you say it was you? (laughs) Publicity. (laughs) Yes, but... I did look into this, and some of the people who turned around and said it was them did so thinking that the statute of limitations had come into effect so that they couldn't be charged with anything. But as soon as they found out that they could still be arrested, they retracted their confessions and said it wasn't them. (laughs) Wow. I want to be famous. I'm this criminal. Okay, you're under arrest. Oh, it wasn't me. No, no, no. Only kidding. (laughs) Still write up the story in the paper, though, yeah? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The Cooper hijacking marked the beginning of the end for unfettered and unscrutinized commercial airline travel. Despite the initiation of the Federal Sky Marshal Program the previous year, 31 hijackings were committed in U.S. airspace in 1972. 19 of them were for the specified purpose of extorting money, and most of the rest were attempts to reach Cuba. And one was just for fun. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) In 15 of the extortion cases, the hijackers also demanded parachutes. In early 1973, the FAA began requiring airlines to search all passengers and their bags, amid multiple lawsuits charging that such searches violated Fourth Amendment protections against search and seizure, federal courts ruled that they were acceptable when applied universally and when limited to searches for weapons and explosives. In contrast to the 31 hijackings in 1972, only two were attempted in 1973, both by psychiatric patients one of whom 
intended to crash the airliner into the White House to kill President Nixon. Surprised he didn't get away with that. <laughs> <laughs> to this day, the identity of Cooper and the whereabouts of the ransom money remain a mystery. However, because of his actions, airline travel and safety was changed forever. Mm-hmm. So that's why we have to go through security now. Yep, this guy's hijacking was why security checks were introduced. Before this, you could just walk on a plane and no one could check you or your bags. Wow. Do you know no. <laughs> Do you know the weirdest thing I've ever seen through a baggage check? Someone thought, and this was, this was on a short flight, I think it was a flight to Turkey or something, you know, like three hour flights or something like that, so it wasn't like a long flight. Someone had all the equipment they would need, or the ingredients they would need, sorry, to bake a cake. So they had flour, eggs and milk in their hand luggage. What? I'm really angry. <laughs> I don't know. I'm really angry because he got it taken off. <laughs> but, yeah, why would... Who thinks they're going to take cake ingredients on a plane? How would they be able to bake it? <laughs> what, do they think they need this stuff because once they get to the other country, they're not going to have stuff to bake cakes? And they really need to bake a cake, so they best take it with them. Well, in that case, you put it in your suitcase. Yeah. <laughs> Not in your hand luggage. My suitcase is full. Well, then take some of your clothes out of your suitcase. Yeah. Put that in your hand luggage, unless their suitcase was full of more bloody baking stuff. <laughs> oh, my God. This has got me really confused and angry, and I don't know why I'm angry about it. It was so bizarre. <laughs> oh. But before, before this story, they'd have been allowed to have done that mid-air baking. Yeah, yeah, they'd have been throwing flour and eggs everywhere on that flight. <laughs> so, you know, I think we need to owe a service to Cooper for this. Yeah, you know, he, despite the fact that they've never been able to figure out who he is, why he did it, if he survived or not, this hijacking had huge impact on air travel and i didn't know about any of this and i didn't know about the effects of his his hijacking until i got to the end of my research and that came up i Mm. was just researching into wow this guy jumped Mm. out of a plane mid hijack that's kind of cool and it's like yeah okay he actually had an important impact yeah. It's it's surprising. I, <laughs> I think impact it. is I think impact is a wrong term to use. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, it's, it's it's quite it's quite an interesting effect really, isn't it? Let's yeah. come out of this insane forty five year long case. Yeah. It's like I do need to look into it a bit more as well. But well, there's plenty of things... reading material for it, Amy, <laughs> One of the things I did find about where this intersected with another story, um, let me just have a look for it. Uh, yeah. During the search, the, the first search, two local women stumbled upon a skeleton in an abandoned structure in Clark County. It was later identified as the remains of a female teenager who'd been inducted and murdered several weeks before. So there's also a murder case this intersects with as well. And it's like, I didn't want to include that just because I need to research that separately and find out what that is. But 
it's like okay that's interesting about a wink yeah yeah <laughs> fascinating when you start digging deep isn't it yeah it, it can be scary how certain historical events intersect but mm. yeah I, I just i stumbled across this one and thought that's quite interesting even just without the uh the changes it made to air travel the fact that this guy just disappeared and nothing's ever been found i know and it was still a case for 46 years i don't know why before it was that important for that long yeah i think it's probably just because they were annoyed they couldn't find out who it was <laughs> it was yeah come the end of it it was like yeah we just want to find out who this is <laughs> but there, there is um a number of suspects um like the more important suspects who they looked into quite a bit <laughs> who you can learn about online there's um like uh, a former con man and convict there's a korean war veteran a commercial airline pilot who they thought did it because they transitioned gender and got fired from their job so they think it was them trying to get money out of the company there was an air air force veteran they thought it could have been a grocery store manager who they thought was a contender as one of the suspects yeah, there's a lot of people with like links to to piloting and military potential reasons. Yeah, who all fit, and it's like well, it very well could have been them. But as much evidence that points it to them being them, there's also a lot that rules them out as well. There's no clear answers, and it's very interesting. And it did inspire a number of copycat hijackings as well, which are also worth looking into. <laughs> Presumably, it was a success. If we call it a success, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this one's interesting. Someone um, hijacked an airliner from Los Angeles to New York, demanded three hundred and six thousand eight hundred dollars in cash, the release of Angela Davis from prison, and an audience with President Nixon. <laughs> <laughs> and how much of that was accomplished? Oh, when they landed, he was shot and arrested. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's a shame. It's a bugger for Andrew Davis, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah. A, a fun little subject that, like with most of our episodes, we cover the basics. And if you are interested, please go and look into it because it is hugely fascinating. Mm. There are There are books... On this topic because it is there's a building I believe yes. in Washington DC dedicated to it. <laughs> yes. you can go and read 60 volumes of case files if you're in the area I think I think you're probably better off just doing the quiff notes generally speaking <laughs> and if you're in America and you regularly handle $20 bills check your serial numbers you could have a Cooper bill but it probably won't <laughs> probably won't <laughs> So, Pete, if people enjoyed listening to this and our little chats, where can they find you online and where can they listen to some of your work? Well, I'm the host and head, well, everything, of Smorgasbord, which is S-M-O-R-G-A-S-B-O-R-E-D. And that's, well, it's a site filled with um, different shows, uh, the flagship show is weekly, and that's about weird news. 
And we've had several guests on there who have also appeared on this show, and obviously yourself, Amy. Um, and we cover weird news, silly games, moans, and etc. We also have a few different shows starting off as well, uh, all on the similar sort of eccentric, weird, quirky themes. So you can see where we're, um, uh, we link together quite nicely. And if you want to find us, you can find us on iTunes uh, or Apple Podcasts, it's called these days. Um, Stitcher, Acast, it's up for Smorgasbord, S-M-O-R-G-A-S-B-O-R-E-D. You can tweet us at Smorgasbord Pod. You can find us on Instagram at Smorgasbord Pod. Or you can email me at smorgasbordpod at gmail.com as well. And I'm always willing to have a chat with you. Except for when I'm asleep. I'm, I miss the recording time by an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Which is entirely hypothetical. In Indeed, that is. <laughs> and if you enjoyed the episode and want to keep up to date on Eccentric Earth, we have a social media presence as well. You can find us on Twitter by going to at eccentric underscore earth, as well as joining our Facebook group at eccentric earth. And you can find us on Instagram. All of our social media platforms are up to date with new and upcoming shows. And we tweet out and post history facts pretty much every day as well. If you want to write in with any suggestions for future episodes or to get in contact with us for any reason, our email address is eccentricearth at outlook.com. And you can find us on all major podcast providers and on YouTube. So make sure you subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. And thank you, Pete, for joining me for another great episode. No, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. It really has. Thank you very much. And we'll see you all next time. Bye. Bye.